CITR 101.9 FM. Today is November the 2nd, and my name is Christine Kim. I am broadcasting to you live from the University of British Columbia, Vancouver campus, from unceded Musqueam territory. Today, I will be your show host for the afternoon, and what you can expect from today's show is a mixture, as always, of reviews, previews, and interviews. I'm going to talk a bit about Chan Center events, feature an interview with show creator and performer of brain, as well as plug our favorite UBC Department of Theater and Film for their annual run of Beckett. So it's going to be a fun show, and I'm really glad that you're here with me to listen. It is a new month, and fall is slowly starting to give way to winter. Now that Halloween is past, I suppose us Canadians look ahead not to Thanksgiving, but to Christmas, or perhaps maybe Remembrance Day. Anyways... Last Tuesday, Ashley and I both went to go see The Pianist, a concert catastrophe at the Colch. Now, Ashley did talk about this show last week, but I just want to bring in my two cents about the production because it's actually still running at the Colch and will be until this Sunday, November the 6th. So if you're interested, you can still go see it. The production is basically about a guy who tries to perform a piano concert but can't seem to get his sheet music in order or even the physical piano to open up properly and so much more goes wrong. It's definitely a show to laugh with and I was really pleased to see the amount of kids that came to see the performance and their giggles and audience participation was really like a breath of fresh air. So go theater for targeting the younger audience. I highly recommend that you... That if you've got a younger sibling or uh, you just want to have a family fun night, um, please do consider going to see it. Uh, tickets are from $20 and they are on sale at the Culture's box office, which you can contact by phone at 604-251-1363 or online at www.theculch.com. Speaking of good performances... It seems this year especially, there's just so much going on at the Chan Center. Every week, I've got new news about artists and their concerts for you, which I'm absolutely loving. So without further ado, we've got the return of three-time Latin Grammy Award-winning vocalist Diego El Cigala. On Sunday, November the 20th at 7 p.m., he'll be showcasing his melodies from the album Indestructible. You can get tickets at chancenter.com, and prices start from $54. To entice you to check out Diego Alcigala's concert, here's a single on Esta Tarde Gris. Qué ganas de llorar 
En esta tarde gris, en su repiquetear, la lluvia habla de ti. Remordimiento de saber que por mi culpa nunca, vida nunca te veré. Mis ojos cerrados te ven igual que ayer, temblando al implorar de nuevo mi querer. Y oye tu voz que vuelve a mí, tiene esta tarde gris. Ven, triste me decía, que en esta soledad no puede más el alma mía. Estoy cansado de llorarte, sufrir y esperarte Y hablar siempre a solas con mi corazón Ven, pues te quiero tanto Que si no viene hoy, voy a Este amor clavado en mí como una maldición. No supe comprender su desesperación y alegre malé en alas de otro amor. Que solo triste me encontré cuando me vi tan leo y mi engaño comprobé. Hizo acerrado, te ven igual calle, temblando al implorar de nuevo mi querer. Y hoy es tu voz que vuelve a mí y en esta tarde Y hablar siempre a sola con mi corazón Ven, pues te quiero tanto Que si no viene hoy Voy a acabar ahogado en llanto Ay, no, no puedo más vivir así este amor clavado en mí como una maldición que ganas de llorar en esta tarde gris. Hey there. 
This ad caught your attention. It also caught the attention of the coolest people from Squamish to Bellingham. Music fans, students, and members of various cultural communities. If you want your ad to do the same, advertise with CITR and Discorder. If you've got a rad new ad or just something you want to share, whether in print, on air, or online, promote your wares, services, or events with us. Contact us at advertising at citr.ca or call 604-822-4342. Visit citr.ca for rates, information, and packages. This is the end of our ad, and if you're still here, we must be doing something right. want to go to a party with me? No. Game's on. Oh, I almost forgot. I'll be right there. We like sports and we don't care who knows. From shooting hoops to the Super Bowl. Do you like sports and don't care who knows? Then CITR Sports needs you. If you like sports, are into radio, or generally just want to have a great time, then come join us. Email our sports coordinator at sports101 at citr.ca to find out more, or come by the station in the new sub. See you soon. Derail a train and goes down a hill into a yard where a man is sleeping in a hammock and he gets killed. What about them? Is it fair to kill an innocent bystander? And what about privilege? The gender, age, education, race of all the people involved. How does that affect your mind state? And what does that say? Like, what if you can hit all five and they survive and they go to the hospital and they're all on life support and they each require a different organ transplant and then a man walks in with all five available organs? What do you do then? Do you kill him? What if he's homeless? What if he's Gandhi? You want to kill Gandhi? <laughs> That was a short excerpt from the YouTube trailer of the production Brain. Brain is an upbeat, intense comedy about what it's like to lose your mind. The show follows Brendan McLeod's experience with obsessive-compulsive disorder, from a teenager struggling to understand his obsessions to an adult battling psychosis. Brendan is a prolific writer, spoken word artist, and musician, author of the novel The Convictions of Leonard McKinley, and founder of folk music group The Fugitives. Brendan will be performing Brain at the Chan Center November the 17th, and will be doing an informative panel discussion on OCD about a week prior, on Wednesday, November the 9th, at Creekside Community Center. I got to chat with him on Saturday afternoon about his latest production. My name is Brennan McLeod. I'm the writer and performer of the show Brain. What is Brain? Brain is a one-person show that I uh, don't act in. I just tell stories about my life. And it's about 55 minutes long, so it's an hour of me standing on stage with no props or costumes and blabbing. So I know that doesn't sound like too much fun, but hopefully it is more fun than it sounds like. Gotcha. And would you characterize this as a theatrical performance, or would you characterize it as a comedy show? Yeah, I never really know what to say with those kind of things. I just go with blabbing. It is does have aspects of comedy, and it does have aspects of, uh, like, darkness. But I think it's, you know, it's that classic ride where, you know, there's, like, the arc. It's, like, funny, and then it gets really sad, but it doesn't leave you on a cliff. Like, it helps you be so happy at the end of it. Gotcha. And on that note, in your opinion, why do you think that comedy and tragic stories or events go so commonly together? You would think that the two are an oxymoron, but more often than not, really good comedy often features very sad topics. Yeah. I mean, it does make sense when you think about it, I guess. I mean, sometimes tragic topics are just dealt with tragically. Like, they don't have to be dealt with comedically. And sometimes comedy is about just really dumb things like running into a wall. 
But, you know, like all things in life, sometimes they go together. I mean, you know, everyone who knows someone who's had cancer or had someone uh, die and gone through a period of grief and, you know, had bad things happen to them, like their pet has passed away. But within the context of that, like, they're still living their everyday life and they have to interface with these kind of, like, really grievous moments as a human. And that is inherently clumsy and dorky and funny and also sad all at the same time. So I think if people are, you know, you can... They're not mutually exclusive concepts, so, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And why did you feel the need to create a show like Brain that targets and, and shares with the world your experience battling um, obsessive-compulsive disorder? Um, I wanted to talk about obsessive-compulsive disorder just in a personal, nuanced way. So I wanted to give a full kind of discussion of what happened in obsessive-compulsive disorder. Um, unfortunately, with a lot of mental illness, it's still like that idea out there with a lot of things that are pretty kind of quick. Like, for instance, obsessive-compulsive disorder, a classic is that you... Um, have an obsession about having dirty hands and you have to wash them, that's a compulsion. And a lot of people still kind of have that thought about obsessive compulsive disorder, which is definitely one kind of obsessive compulsive disorder. But there's so many different kinds of manifestations. And I think uh, some of them are really dark, really dirty, uh, really discomforting to hear and talk about. But until Mm -hmm. we talk about that really discomforting parts of it uh, in an honest, more vulnerable way, then I think we can kind of it for what it is and you like name it and talk about it more easily so i think it's just about bringing a like you know a wider kind of idea of what ocd is mm-hmm, mm-hmm. what are some of the biggest misconceptions you think that people have about ocd um, I don't. Yeah, maybe it's not even a misconception. It's just like we don't talk about any, it in any detail, really, on a wide scale. You know, it's more just the people, uh, and why would they? Like, they, sometimes people just don't have really great uh, grasp on some of the different varieties it can take, and that includes me. Like, I mean, OCD is so, like all mental illness, uh, is so varied, right? And so I just think the more stories out there about those kinds of things are better. For instance, I don't suffer from depression, and sometimes when people tell me stories about depression, like, it's shocking to me because I'm like, whoa, I never thought it would manifest itself like that. But the more you hear that, the more you understand, and you kind of get this bigger lexicon, like, mm-hmm. with regards to depression. You'll be like, oh, it's not just this one way of, like, you have to, like, cuddle up in bed. It's mm-hmm. all of these other insidious ways that it, like, inflicts on your personality, you know? And that, mm-hmm. and that makes you have a, not only a better understanding of depression, but it's a better understanding of human beings in general. And then you're way more likely to empathize with them on a day-to-day basis. Right, and I, I don't want to um, reveal, I guess, too much about the content of brain, but I am very curious about what has been the difference uh, between your experience with OCD as a teenager um, versus battling with with it as an adult? Yeah, great question. Um, I think the biggest difference is the teenager. I didn't know what it was, and I had it. Hmm. And as an adult, I found out I got diagnosed for the first time when I was eighteen. Uh, and so you think, oh yeah, I mean, I thought. For sure, like as soon as I was diagnosed, I'm like, cool, I know what this is, I got this now because now it can't get me because I know what it is, which is not the case at all, of course. It's like a really nice way of thinking about it, but I was super excited, and I talked about that in the show about how the first, like when I first got diagnosed, I was so happy because it wasn't just this weird thing. I mean, it actually had a name, and other people had this weird thing, and I was like, yes, I'll never have this again. Mm -hmm. But then, you know, it just because it is what it is, it just kind of gets in you and you don't notice you're doing it. Even if you do, you can't stop it. That's part Mm -hmm. of the thing. So it's a different relationship to it, but it is, uh, you know, and in some ways the same, but I think it's the biggest difference is just that cognizance of, like, what you're up against. Mm -hmm. As a teenager, you're like, I mean, you know, you don't know very much about 
a lot of things because <laughs> you're like 13 years old or I was. <laughs> Uh, but I especially didn't know what was happening to me, really. And do you think you have that community now, at least? Do you think that health infrastructure, I guess in Canada or in Toronto specifically, builds that safe place for people who want to share their struggles about OCD or get support for this mental illness? Yeah, I think a lot of different things help in different ways for different people. For me, my biggest thing has been friendships and relationships in my life mm-hmm. that I've been able to talk to about it, and that's kind of just me getting better at talking about it and then realizing what's going on and so then you can share with your partner or you can share with your friend when and you can verbalize what's kind of happening to you and that is very for me that really is very helpful to kind of have an external thing to be able to say words that put a name to these weird emotions that are going on inside Mm -hmm. so that's helpful to me but yes i've heard all kinds of different people talk about different ways of coping so yeah but i think in general getting it outside of your brain because it is stuck as part of it, right? It's a negative feedback loop happening in your brain. And one way to catapult it out of that is to be like, blah, 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 and tell people what's happening. (laughs) Right, right. And I know I already said this, but really when I was seeing the trailer for Brain on YouTube, I couldn't stop laughing and couldn't stop thinking of how um, witty, I guess, the script was. And I was wondering, when did you start writing for an audience? Was this kind of a talent that you had um, very early on, or was this kind of something you discovered later in life? Um, I always wanted to be a writer, ever since I was like in grade five, I think. Uh, but then, I, you know, I, but I wanted to write books, which I still want to write books. Uh, but then when I was like 20 and I moved to Vancouver for the first time, I, started got a, I got into Poetry Slam. Like that's how I first started performing stories for audiences. Uh, and so I just happened to pass a cafe and there was a guy with like a funny hat telling a story and people were listening to him and I was like, oh, what a cool immediate way to get uh, feedback on what you're doing. And I think it's still my favorite thing about like storytelling, live storytelling or spoken word or whatever it is that I do uh, is uh, <laughs> that immediate, like you get this reaction from human beings, right? right. So if, you, if, they, if you say something that's funny or it's supposed to be funny and they don't laugh and you're like, okay, that's not funny. Uh, you know, or if you, you can see on their face if it's hitting or if it's not hitting and so then you can go back to the drawing board and change your script and stuff. Mm-hmm. So it's, you know, as opposed to just writing a book, which I also do in my house and like never sharing with anyone and not really knowing if it's good or not, you know? On that topic, what was some of the initial feedback on your first draft of Brain? Uh, my girlfriend really made me, she was the first person to see it and she made me rewrite it like about seven times because she was, her biggest thing was she was like, you're not telling the truth all the time. Hmm. Totally true. Like you try to, I think the first script of Brain, like it had a lot more stories about other people or it would be uh, kind of like, kind of glossing over. That's how deep it is, right? It's trying to gloss over what the specifics of my thoughts were. Hmm. Which makes sense because they're so. I was like, they're so personal and so like weird that that's not like you know no one's gonna get it. And she was like, no, hmm. that's it. You've got to be. You got to stick to what is. You know, that's the thing that within the specificity of that is the generality that everyone's gonna understand. And so finally, when I got it kind of down, I did like a little workshop uh, performance in Toronto and Vancouver, and uh, you know, basically gave people free beer in order to listen to me blab at them and then tell me what's wrong with my show, which was great. I'm mean, really scared because. Some of the thoughts in the show are very personal, and it was my mm-hmm. first time kind of like doing that to a bigger audience than two people. Uh, it was great, though. It was, it was super helpful. I mean, I changed the script a lot based on the workshop feedback. Like, it's just great to hear people be like, I didn't quite understand this, or I did understand that, mm-hmm. or I wanted more of this. So, I mean, I think it's like indispensable tool for doing what I'm doing. 
And were you surprised by any of people's feedback? Any parts of the show that you were like, I didn't think that anybody would really get this, but they do? Yeah, I would say that's like my biggest surprise is that, I mean, people who don't have OCD at all are like, oh man, I mean, I don't have it like that, but I do have, you know, some kind of different, I see what you're doing there, I see mm. how that happens, or I like I have a thing kind of like that, you know what I mean? So <laughs> I'm always like, really? Because that's some weird stuff I just said, but, uh, <laughs> but yeah, so I guess, I mean, that's great for me too, to be like, yeah, you know, we're all little, everyone has weird thoughts, like there's not a human being on earth that doesn't have a weird thought, so, you know, I don't know, they have, they're not as shocked by the material as I expected, and I think that's great. Right, and I think it also makes people feel better because not many people really share the weird thoughts in their mind, but when they know that somebody else has thought that before too, they're like, oh, well, I must not be so weird after all. <laughs> that's right, that's exactly right. <laughs> um, so now, how are you feeling for your performance at the Chan Center? Tell me about how you're uh, prepping, if at all, um, and how you're feeling. Yeah, no, I'm excited to play the Champs, and I'm doing a couple of uh, theaters, uh, like one in Nanaimo, one in Victoria, and one in Vancouver. So, yeah, you know, I mean, yeah, it's a great space. It's my birthday on November 17th, so what? I think it'll be a really cool birthday to have. I mean, it's not the best to be working on your birthday, but uh, that show's not really, I mean, it's work, but it's, it's like the good kind of work, All the right. best kind of work. So I'll, I'll definitely take it as a special birthday. Gotcha, gotcha. And tell me about the informative panel discussion that will be uh, preceding the performance. Yeah, so there's one on the 9th, and uh, it takes place through the Peter Wall Institute, and it's about, it's just a discussion of OCD, so there are uh, a couple of, like, cognitive, like, more kind of, like, people, like, doctors who can specialize in knowing a lot about OCD, so oh. give information like that. Very cool. And then there is me, who I think is just kind of talking about my own experience with it, because I'm not an OCD expert. I'm just kind of my own little OCD expert, and I don't even know if I'm an expert on <laughs> my own, but uh, I'm, I'll be talking about my experiences. And then uh, I think one of the doctors is actually bringing a, her daughter, mm. so I think there'll be, like, a parent-child kind of discussion on how to deal with that with uh, kids. So mm -hmm. I think that's cool, too. What do you hope that uh, this will inspire in audiences or people who go to attend the panel discussion? In general, you know, I mean, brain is about uh, mental illness, but it's also just about the miracle of consciousness and how amazing it is to have sense awareness and bodily experience and, uh, you know, uh, cognition and imagination all going around in your brain and somehow through a synthesis like aesthetic process that we don't even understand, mm -hmm. like make us be aware of ourselves mm -hmm. like it's a big mystery why that is and no one really knows the answer as to why that is so uh, I think it's also about that you know it's about the way weird way the brain functions but it's also just like how weird it is to even have a brain mm -hmm. so you know it's just the show is just an hour to people just kind of like enjoy thinking about thoughts and be scared and um, like amazed by thoughts and the panel discussion is a little more geared towards OCD but so I guess it's just targets people who are interested in that, but it's not just OCD, like, it's just, I think, again, just, you know, about one way the brain can manifest anxiety, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. of which there are billions. And you did talk a little bit about uh, your background as a writer, and I also know that you are a musician, so you've authored the novel The Convictions of Leonard McKinley, and you are also the founder of the folk music group The Fugitives. So you're quite a uh, artistic person. 
Uh, do you want to tell me a little bit about what you're working on currently? I'm working on three things right now. I'm working on a new music album with The Fugitives, which is mm. getting recorded in December. Uh, and I am writing a new live show with The Pianist about uh, a bunch of different things, but it centers on Rachmaninoff, which sounds very uh, artsy-fartsy, but I think it's going to be really great. Mm. Uh, and I'm writing a novel, which is a coming-of-age story about a young woman. So those are the three things I do. I also, you know, write grants and procrastinate. So <laughs> Well, Brendan, thank you so much for um, speaking with me and chatting with me. Before we end off this interview, I'm going to ask you to do, a, to do a couple things, first of which is going to be, um, what are some final words you have to entice our listeners to come watch Brain? If you're interested in the brain or consciousness or friendship or mental illness, uh, then or laughing, or being sad, or both, then you should come Talk to the show. Talk about I think that covers most people, yeah. <laughs> but if, you don't, if you're not interested in any of those things, then I guess you're not going to like the show. But hopefully that is enough there to make people be interested in it, yeah. Perfect. And now, uh, if you could just remind our listeners about the date of when Brain will be uh, performing at the Chen, as well as how they can get tickets. Uh, Brain is happening at the Chan Center on November 17th, and tickets are available at chancenter.com. That was the show creator and performer of Brain, Brendan McLeod. Please do continue to tune in to the Arts Report. We will be right back after a few short commercials. <laughs> She'll make a lovely doll after I finish with you. I told you your webs were useless. Spider-Man! It's melting! It's, it's too hot. It's too hot. Something must have hit the control lever. Turn it off. Want to save energy and keep yourself comfortable? Turn down your thermostat one degree Celsius or consider installing a programmable thermostat. If every household in BC with electric space heating turned down their heat by one degree for eight hours a day, it would save enough electricity to power Science World for over 75 years. This Power Smart Play brought to you by BC Hydro Power Smart and CITR 101.9 FM. Well-known pimp, narcotics king, big-time racketeer, back in full force. Being one of the big moments in your life don't make it you last. Look, this thing might be bigger than even we think it is. Do you need an upgrade to the soundtrack to your life? Perhaps a song from a film or a tune from TV? My name is Gap. Exploding Head Movies is here to give you sounds from the cinema, along with the songs that will be defining your future and those forgotten classics that need a little rescue. p.m. on CITR 101.9 FM, Vancouver. Welcome back to the Arts Report. My name is Christine Kim, and you are tuning in to the radio show dedicated to all things arts and culture in Venn City. 
Last but not least, we do need to talk about Beckett 16. Why? Because this really is a once-a-year opportunity to watch theater alumni such as Beverly Bardell, Cam Cronin, and Deb Pickman take to the stage for a limited run of fundraising performances. All the proceeds will go to benefiting the Peter Loeffler Student Prize, which is an award given to undergraduate students majoring in theater to help finance their education. So it's a worthy cause, and tickets are on sale now, $15 uh, for the run, which starts tomorrow on November the 3rd, uh, all the way to Saturday, November the 5th. And all performances happen at the Freddie Wood Theater. And for tickets, you can go to tickets.ubc.ca. I spoke with legendary figure in the British Columbia theater scene who is also featured in Beckett 16. Norman Young is a UBC alumni that is renowned as a local theater historian and teacher. My chat with him was really quite something else, and as he says in his own words, go watch Beckett 16 because, quote, it'll give you a different view of what theater can be if you attend it. My name is Norman Young, Matthew Norman Young, and... Uh, I'm a professor emeritus in theater at, <coughs> at UBC. And you're here to talk today to me about Beckett 16. What is that? I'm hoping you can tell me. Oh, yes, but I haven't seen any of the pieces. Only the, one, only the one that I did, which is not on stage. It's a little film. A film? Well, it's, you know, it's a Beckett film, so I'm not that long. Gerald uh, Vanderwood, who... Uh, does it? He was the manager of finance and everything in the theater department. Now he's an assistant dean and does the facilities and stuff. And he does this once a year. He uh, he's a, a fairly good expert on Beckett, and he loves doing it. But uh, if you do a BV of Beckett, <laughs> most people aren't going to come. <laughs> But uh, he, he does it by throwing in humor and some other scenes and uh, a variety of different little uh, jokes and stand-ups and that sort of thing. So it's a nice little variety program with Beckett interlaced. So tell me about what Beckett theater is and what is that as a genre when you say Beckett film or a little bit of Beckett interlaced. What does oh, that mean? Oh, well, well, Beckett, uh, Beckett used besides writing uh, longer things like Waiting for Godot, etc., etc., he wrote some very small things. He wrote things as an essence in the theater. For instance, uh, he wrote one that's about seven seconds. It's not very fast. The one that Jor uh, Gerald did with me that will be in the show is probably a minute and a half or something. But uh, last year I did uh, two of the Beckett's, Hey Joe and Catastrophe, and I didn't have a line. In the first one, I'm sitting on a dilapid bed in Paris, listening in my head to the uh, talkings of a woman telling me what an awful life I'd led and how mean I was to people and to the people I loved, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, it actually was, it's, Beckett only wrote one thing for television, and that was it. It was designed to be in television studio with cameras and all that sort of stuff on stage. Uh, so Gerald did it with big pictures. There were pictures immense, maybe five, six, ten feet around, and uh, of a 
of me as I'm reacting to things. Then I was on stage for one line in a, a different scene, a different thing, and then I was a statue in a Beckett, which is catastrophe. For about 17 minutes, I was a statue, so so I had one line over my 35 minutes. That must have been tiring. very clever. Well, to stand for 17 minutes. Yeah. Well, oh, yes. It's, uh, but one of the problems that I had, a recent throat operation, which is why you're not hearing my, my actual voice now. And I couldn't, I couldn't really enunciate and project Giant. enough. So Gerald tied those two things together and made them part of it. But um, Gerald does it as a small fundraiser for different scholarships within the theater department. And uh, the one this year is going to be for the Peter Loeffler. What is the Peter Loeffler Scholarship? Oh, Peter, well, Peter was uh, on the faculty at the same time I was for many years. And uh, he was uh, an expert on theater, theater history. And uh, he was a, a Swiss gentleman who... Uh, and um, he was an expert on Gordon Craig and a variety of uh, designers. Um, very, very learned, intelligent, and nice guy. He sort of mentored Gerald through his uh, master degree, and and it's fine. But they have a, there's one for me and one for various people who've been there. And they're not much, but you know, like. 1,500, 1,000, and it's just given by, uh, it's not given on marks, it's given entirely on their attitude towards theater. Mm. Anyone who goes to it will be quite surprised and will enjoy it because it'll be something different in their theatrical viewing. So in total, how many shows are in Beckett 16, including your film, your <sighs> short film? Oh, the, oh, the show, the, it, uh, it runs about uh, 50 to 60 minutes. Nice thing. And then there's free tea and cooking and cakes afterwards. And it's uh, $10 to, to see. And tell me about how your experience was working with other theater alumni. Oh, oh that, was, that was really nice because <laughs> the age difference was pretty big. <laughs> um, they're sort of in, uh, in their late late 20s, early 30s, and I'm 90, so that we, were <laughs> we were a little bit apart in almost everything that, uh, you know, that you know or think or whatever. One of them is now uh, doing Gerald's job in the theater, um, Gerald's previous job, that's Cam, and Joe, uh, he works uh, in the library, and Bev is uh, Gerald's wife, and uh, they're all theater people and all trained uh, in acting, etc. And they they just love doing it. So they they don't do it anymore. So it's real shot for them to get three or four nights in in a lot of rehearsal and just doing it for the enjoyment. Mm -hmm. And for yourself, you've been in the theater industry for decades. Yes, that's right. Yeah. I mean, looking back, words of wisdom for you to share? Oh, <laughs> I mean, to those people who would, to all you parents who would let your children go in to study theater well, or something. Well, I mean, the Peter... Forget it. Send them into something. 
No, 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 no. I take it back. Unfortunately, over the past two years, I've been very ill. And I, they just found out a month and a half ago what it was, and they've corrected, and I'm starting to come back. But I was involved at the beginning with the um, Players Club people that uh, they did a sh the student UBC Players Club. Right, right. And they uh, they did uh, a couple of shows, etc. I saw one of them. I was well enough to go and see one of them, but I couldn't really contribute much to them because I was just not not there. And I found it fascinating their their activity with this uh, thing and their their fervent idea that the theater means something, yeah. which it does. But uh, they did, and it was nice working with them for the few minutes that I did. Tell me a little bit more about your film in particular for Beckett 16. Give us more detail about what the concept is. Uh, the absurd, uh, which is the way most people refer to it, but it's more than that. And have you ever seen Waiting for Godot? No, I have not. Oh, well, that's a very, that's a very important piece of theater. And you should, if you ever see it going somewhere, go and see it no matter who's doing it. And don't worry about how bad it is. Just listen to the language. Um, it's uh, it's not a it's not a bright view of society or mankind or anything. It's pretty pretty grim, but wonderful theater. At the same time, a lot of thoughts will come to you. You can you can go off in many tangents if you listen to what uh, Beckett is saying about. Mm, disorder uh, or tightness or yeah. um so just to clarify beckett is improvised oh no 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 beckett is very 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 conditioned the lot the, the lines and the language uh, have to be said with uh, with the exact wording of beckett it's not necessarily something that he's laid down it's a known fact that you, you have to do it that way or you're not getting the full impact or any impact at all. Some authors, of course, lay down the situation. Well, Shaw, you weren't allowed to change a line in Shaw or a word in Shaw. And if you ever hired the, took the royalties out, of, uh, took the royalty situation about the play and you were doing it, uh, in the early days, there was always someone would come uh, would check the theater and the script, come with the script and check. You know, the <laughs> word for word. Yeah, word for word and everything else. So lots of practice and uh, rehearsals then? Yes, yes. It's a, a very rehearsal play. And there will be great views. You you might be the director. And I say, well, no, no, I think there has to be, there has to be a little more uh, grimness in this. I, I can't. I can't say this. I can't say these lines without really digging into the fact that this is grim. This is. And then you say, No, no, I don't want it that way. I don't want it that way. I want that to be there, but it cannot be dominant. So, some something like that. Uh, directors and and people 
who likes acting better are all, you know, so they may be talking uh, philosophy or thought for half an hour and then finally saying, okay, well, in that case, stand up and, and you mark that in your script, stand up. <laughs> it's vaudeville uh, in some ways because uh, there are songs, uh, not that many, but, uh, and comedy, uh, skits, uh, and serious little pieces. Do you, would you characterize the majority of Beckett as grim and depressing? Yes, a lot of people find it depressing, but, but that's, uh, that's really not what it's about. Mm -hmm. I, okay. Uh, it's, not, it's not, it, 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 it'll give you a different view to what theater can be if you go to, if you attend it. You'll find it, it'll give you a lot of thought about uh, other theater pieces you've seen and how they would differ from it. I'm trying to think of uh, some way of giving a comparison, but I can't. I'm a failure. No. In what ways do you think Beckett Theater in particular has changed the way you look at your life or look at what's going on around you? The, the little piece that Gerald has done with me, it's just a face. The camera is right in on a face only, and it's uh, very somber. And then it's there, and then uh, a cup comes in on a, about that much arm and touches the lips with just a little water and goes away again. And then a little later, all you're doing is looking at this face, which is making no expression. It has the one expression. And a little handkerchief-type thing comes in, dabs the forehead, and goes away again. And that's what it is. Now, after you've seen it, and I'm telling you, you have to go. All right? <laughs> you have to go. <laughs> One of these holes in the wall and, and go and see it, all right? And then we'll talk about it afterwards. Theater is that it is an art form. No, I don't think that of film. You don't think that? <laughs> no, I don't think that of film. I think film, film nowadays is so manufactured, so many people are involved in manufacturing it okay. that I, I just don't see it. Uh, it used to be. It certainly was when it was silent, etc. But that, but that's just a personal opinion, and probably everybody who likes film will disagree with me. But film is an entertainment. That's what it is. It's like a sports a sports game that they sell tickets to. It's an entertainment, and it becomes more and more obvious that film is going down the path of less thought about this and that by doing all the, the, the Marvel comic strips, the, the Dumb and Dumbers, the, all of this stuff, the, uh, gross humor that appeals to people when they're sitting in a seat and they, and they see it on the screen. They probably never have anything to do with it in their real lives. But it's, it's come to that because it's what sells. And uh, they're... Every once in a while, a wonderful movie will come along, and it will mean something. 
it will really mean something. Uh, but not the way they're churning them out now. And I mean, how many car wrecks can you sustain? But uh, but it's entertainment, and it's really good entertainment. I'm not throwing from that. Well, in theater, it has to entertain, and it has to be handled by a living person who is in a situation that in normal plays, just what you were talking about earlier, in normal plays has a beginning and an end and a plot. And uh, remember, there are, there are really only nine plots in the world. You can put that somewhere, <laughs> nine plots. In fact, there's a wonderful book called Plato that a modern writer can get. Now, Plato is, is written in the 20s, but it's, uh, it's all indexed, you know, and you you read a little bit, uh, boy meets girl on park bench uh, for, for romance, turn to page 34, for this, turn to page 4, and then you flip through the thing and you find out the next part of the plot. And you can create, make your own plots, but they are all, <laughs> they're one of the nine. I mean, now I'm, I'm being very loose here, but, but uh, and, and commenting on the side. So I wouldn't want you to take this seriously. <laughs> but uh, in theater, if it's old-fashioned theater, it is very restricted because the what the author's trying to say is in his words. That's one of the reasons they don't like the idea of you changing. You probably know the plot. You probably know the story. And yet, when you're watching it being retold, these are different actors. You may never have seen the play. Finally, you're seeing the actors from the page in the flesh with those lines, and you say, well, that's not what I remember. That's not what I thought about there. That's not what I thought about. Because in the, when you're reading the play, most of the time you're reading the story because that's the simplest thing to do is you read the story and, and the plot because of it. But when you're watching the theater, uh, the live thing, all sorts of things will come up to you if you do it properly. Now, I know that most of our university students <laughs> who are taking the obligatory English courses, they have to divide. I mean, it used to be 100 and 200 when in the 40s when I went to school, but uh, they they have certain plays on the lists to read. Or if they take a Shakespeare course, they have to, <laughs> there's certain plays they have to read. And they they might find book notes and read them. <laughs> you know, there are all sorts of things happen. But uh, a thorough reading is really important. But when you see it, and no matter what the lecturer is saying, it's going to be different. It's going to be absolutely different because you will see partially what you read. You'll see the story, but you'll also see the reality of this or the unreality if it's an absurd sort of thing. But theater's changed a little. A little or a lot? Well, it, one thing has changed is, but that's over the last 30, 40 years. They never used to worry about how many people were in a play. 
especially if you're doing it professionally, they find the money to pay them. But then nowadays, it's so expensive to put a play on that if the number of characters in the scene in plays dwindles. You don't find any 35 casts anymore or whatever. Oh, I can tell you a little story about that. When long ago the uh, Dean of Arts gave us uh, $5,000 to bring somebody in and they did it to music and for $5,000 you can probably get the airfare and the hotel room for them, you know, to come and stay for a week to do a couple of seminars. Uh, we went together with Creative Writing and Jake Zilber, who was big man in the Creative Writing then, said, well, look, let's bring in a playwright and that'll serve both of us, the theater and the creative writing. Okay. And, and Jake phoned people. He called Arthur Miller's agent. <laughs> he called Minja's agent. Uh, he called Pender's agent. He called Tennessee Williams' agent. And he was talking to all of them, but they, they talked to him, but they didn't say anything. Nobody bit. No. And uh, then we got a letter. And it was from Tennessee Williams' agent. And he, he said, uh, Mr. Williams would be very happy to come and be there for three or four weeks uh, if you will do a production of his favorite play. What was his favorite play? Ah, let's see if you can guess. Was it Beckett? <laughs> was it a Beckett play? <laughs> no, it wasn't a Beckett play. Uh, no, it wasn't a Beckett play. It was a play called, I forget what the name of it now was. It had 35 characters. Yeah. Was it the Le Red Le Devil Le Battery Sign was the name of the play. You ever heard of it? No, I haven't. No, you haven't. You, you know Streetcar Named Desire? Right? Yes. And we looked at them and we said, 35 characters. And a lot of them are older. And we didn't have the, <coughs> we didn't have the actors to, uh, to do any of the age parts with any credibility. I mean, you, you can fake a couple of, of them, but <laughs> trying to do 10 or 12 older people with, with teenagers is not, not part of the game. So uh, I went to uh, Roger Hodgman, who was the head of the Playhouse downtown, and we made an arrangement that they would do the play, and we would have Tennessee for all the time that we wanted them. And uh, he came, and I, I had to take care of him, which was a fascinating thing. I mean, a really, a, a gentleman, a really marvelous, kind, sweet person. The, the th oh, the thing is, the, the, what I was po getting to point out was it wasn't a very good play. <laughs> it it wasn't, wasn't a good play? No, it wasn't a good play. Uh, there was a lot of things he'd written before, um, and but he loved it. It was his favorite play. I mean, all the, the glass menagerie and streetcar named desire. There you go. And, uh, and, and you wouldn't want, nobody, no professional company around here could do a 35-character play. Uh, well, uh, an amateur company could if they got that many enthusiasts. But uh, there was a big minimalist period in about 1960. No, 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 it would be earlier than that, about the 
into the 50s. And everybody was trying to do things in a min minimalist way, building uh, walls, but just the framework of the wall with no, nothing on it. But it's showing studs, and <laughs> you know, it wasn't really minimalist at all. They're showing the studs and all that stuff on box sets. And the box set, of course, has virtually disappeared in any any modern plays. Every once in a while, they'll do a small thing as an inset in a musical on a wagon or something. But uh, you know, that that's another thing that's happened is that the the chance for marvelous scenery, which was a, a little art form in itself. Some of the Greek uh, scene designers, beautiful, beautiful things on the stage. The casts, the lines, the, the lengths of the play. Finding finding the perfect time for the for the play to run, that that's where Beckett didn't care. <laughs> he read it for five or seven seconds or a snap like that, or he read it for uh, twenty nine minutes. Who's your favorite playwright? My favorite playwright. Is it Beckett? No, no, it's not Beckett. That's Gerald's favorite play. That's Gerald <laughs> Vanderwood. You know, if you ever run across Gerald Vanderwood, don't mention the name. You'll spend the next 24 hours with him strapped to something. No. No, I would say, uh, well, I like comedies. I would uh, I would go for Akeborn in the comedies, Alan Akeborn in the comedies. And uh, I, I think... Um, the Glass Menagerie is one of the, uh, really one of the most wonderful plays written. Everything is about it, and if, if sometimes they don't use the original music that was written for it, but with the original music, it is so, it is just so beautiful, the play. It's a beautiful, beautiful play. Mm -hmm. I, I would, I'd put Tom, Tennessee Williams, and Sometime, if you if you want a little theater thing, I'll tell you about all about Tennessee Williams and his visit here. <laughs> so beyond Beckett, are you, are you doing anything else in the theater scene? Um, well, yes, I, I am. I'm I'm doing a little thing. I've decided to become the, a 90 year old comic. So I've got um, uh, I have a bunch of Eric Nickel. Eric Nickel, well, he he was with the UBC. He he wrote a column while he was at UBC, and then he became the columnist in the Vancouver Province, or uh, the News Herald, and and I think he won the Stephen Leacock uh, Award for humor at wow. least two or three times. Eric Nickel, and uh, he he wrote a lot of stuff about growing old very funny stuff about growing old and I talked to his daughter and we may try to uh, put some of it into uh, sort of a semi-stand-up comedy. You know, I'm planning on coming on with a, in a walker uh, and then as a player, as, as the stand-up goes on, I will be taking the walker and reassembling it as I talk. And we'll end up as a little scooter, a little pedal, peddler thing. 
I like to like to segue, but um, <laughs> I mean later. No, I'm teasing you. Okay. Uh, well, that sounds actually really cool. <laughs> no, but Gerald will. Gerald will. Um, he he's still worried about my health, so he wouldn't do let me do anything except this thing this time. But he'll use me next year. He'll be desperate again. Do you mind giving us the details of the Beckett 16 run so anybody who's interested can get tickets and know when and where they need to be? <laughs> That's a mean thing to do to a man who can't remember. I'm nine years old. I can't remember things. Well, You're being mean to me. I suppose I could give the details for anyone who is <laughs> interested. It is November the 3rd, yeah. this Thursday, starting this Thursday, opening night, all the way to Saturday. You said tickets were at $10 for students and seniors, 15 for just general, oh. and uh, playing at the Freddie Wood Theater, 7.30 p.m. every single night. Right, and... Free coffee, free donuts, and little variety of little tastes and things that the cast made by the cast. Yeah, while rehearsing. <laughs> while rehearsing. Very authentic. <laughs> no, I was trying to trying to throw a little authenticity into the article. So, final words. Give us some final words of why you think people should go see Beck at sixteen. Because. You will see a lovely variety of very, very straightforward, sometimes comical, sometimes very thought-provoking, well-done theater, because the people doing it are excellent, very, very, very well-trained, oddly enough, as in the theater department at UBC, but I have no favorites. They're pretty good, and uh, you'll love it. You'll love it, and you might begin to understand Beckett a little more if you pay attention to the Beckett items that are there intertwined in this variety show. Thank you very much for your time, <laughs> and thank you very much for this interview. And why are you wasting your time on radio when you could be doing television with that beautiful face? <laughs> All right. I think we're done here. Okay. I think we're done. That is it for the official content of today's show. As always, listeners, thank you so much for joining me. Now, I want to do a special plug for any of our listeners out there that are UBC students and who are interested in getting involved with radio work. The Arts Report is currently actively looking for new arts reporters to help cover different arts and culture events around the city. There's just so much going on all the time that Ashley and I seriously need all the manpower we can get to cover everything and all. So if you're interested in theater, film, dance, visual arts, spoken word, and really anything under the broad category of arts and culture, plus you have some sort of a desire to share those thoughts about whatever field of arts and culture you're interested in, do give us a contact um, at arts at citr.ca. That's our email. Our email is arts at citr.ca. Speaking of contacting us, if you would like to follow up with me or Ashley about anything we talk about on our show, please feel free to reach out to us on our social media feeds. Our Twitter handle is at citr underscore arts report, and you can find us on Facebook under the 